Welcome to Best Served, a podcast recognizing unsung hospitality heroes. Join Chef Jensen Cummings as he chops it up with industry leaders about the humans who've impacted their lives and careers. From childhood guides, to ass-kicking mentors, to the team members in the trenches that make it all happen. Help us celebrate these rock stars by sharing our show and nominating your own unsung hospitality heroes. Connect with us on social media at Best Served Podcast. Now here is your host. What's up, everybody? Jensen Cummings here. Thank you for tuning in. Today I'm talking with Bonnie Morales, chef and co-owner of Kachka, Kachka Lavka, and Kachinka in Portland, Oregon. Bonnie, thank you so much for getting on a call with us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me, Jensen. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about your people, your history, a little bit about Russian cuisine to let everybody know. A few years back, 2016, I got the opportunity to be in Portland. Well, I'm in Portland often, but I got the opportunity to eat at Kachka. My good friend Joshua Owen said we had to go and check it out. We sat right next to the kitchen, which is the spot I always like to be in the action. And it was eye-opening, uh, very interesting. A lot of words I had never heard before, a lot of dishes that seemed like they were going to be foreign, but it was very interesting. It was unique, yet also when I was eating everything, it felt very familiar and comfortable. So I'm excited to, to dig into what that is about kind of that Soviet cuisine that uh, felt both foreign and familiar at the same time. But before we get into all that, let's go back a little bit like we always like to do the origin story. You were raised in the Chicago area and at a very young age, you got right into what's the family business. At 14 years old, you were at the Still Life Cafe, prep cook, (laughs) serving, barista. I love that it it makes you laugh right away. Let's dig into family. I, I People listen to the show know I'm a fifth generation chef restaurateur. I'm always fascinated by the family dynamic. I think a lot of times it's either you're born into it or they say, stay the fuck away from this industry. It's crazy. But at 14, they brought you in. What was that? Was it, you're going to get a job. You're going to work for us. It was, we got no, we got no one to watch you after school. You're going to have to come down and peel potatoes. What was, what got you into the restaurant at that early age? Um, I mean, it was a little bit of everything. Uh, I don't think my parents knew what they were doing. Um, so my, my parents and their best friends opened a restaurant together, having zero cumulative knowledge of the industry between the four of them. Um, I have no idea what made them decide that they should do this. Um, but I guess that happens a lot, but, um, yeah, it, uh, was a huge failure. Um, though, um, I ended up helping. They basically lived and breathed it for, I don't remember how long it was open for, maybe four years, maybe five. Um, but it it destroyed any sort of other family gathering time that there could possibly be. My dad kept his day job. So he would, um, he worked as a computer programmer. And so he would like come from his day job, go close, like work the restaurant and put the dinner shift, close it down and then drive home to the Chicago suburbs. Um, so he'd be home at like two in the morning um, and wake up at six or so and do it again the next day for basically, uh, yeah, for almost five years, I think straight. Um, I'm surprised that they didn't go crazy. Um, and yeah, they, they obviously um, it did not end well. It did not end well 
well for their friendship. So like they, them and their best friends have not spoken since. In fact, um, their daughter and I are best friends um, or had been uh, best friends for years and years and years. And we, we still talk um, and we always scheme about like trying to get our parents to um, hang out again together. I don't think that's ever going to happen, but um, yeah, that was a, a very instructive view of what a restaurant is like. And so I wanted nothing to do with restaurants after that, but somehow I ended up doing it anyway. Wow. There's a lot to unpack there. So <laughs> that is such a, I mean, a, a very like quintessential immigrant story. You're, you're, you're first generation, right? And so they're, yeah. they're coming for the American dream. They are trying to find their way. Restaurant industry was a way for them to kind of start a business and wow, like, it's such a common story in all restaurants of like what a challenge or I don't know, even if you've worked in restaurants, owning a restaurant is to the so nth degree uh, crazy. So did you, did you see the, the perseverance in them? Is that something that you weren't going to be deterred by? Was it, I mean, that yeah. challenge has to be crazy to think about you being here after something like that. Yeah. I mean, I will say that when I think about it now, um, and think back on it. Um, if, if I'm ever feeling overworked or stressed out, I'm like, well, it could be worse. <laughs> you know, like it could have been my dad working a, you know, 45 hour a week job and then managing a restaurant on top of it. Um, and like, if I, you know, basically like you got this, um, if you could do it, you can do it. And, um, you're going to have to push harder. So I definitely think that that instilled a lot of, um, yeah, hard work ethic in me. Not that they weren't hard workers before that. It's not like that wasn't evident before, but that certainly um, was a really clear story to me as a kid. What did your parents say when it was clear that you were on a path to be a chef, own restaurants? What was that <laughs> conversation like? <laughs> Um, absolutely not. What are you doing? I, so I, I went to school for graphic or not graphic, sorry, uh, product design, industrial design. And, um, when I graduated from school, I moved to New York. I had this, like, basically this dream job, exactly the thing I wanted to be doing for this kind of company that I wanted to be doing it for. And I absolutely hated it. Um, and ended up deciding to, to stop and, um, go to culinary school. And I mean, there's more to why the, how that happened, but basically, um, uh, when I told my parents what I was doing, they were basically like, you're on your own. We're not supporting you in any way. Like, we don't believe that that's a good idea. So, you know, I was like, I'm, I'm going to pay my way through it. I'm, you know, I'm going to take out student loans and don't worry about it. I've got this. Um, but they, yeah, they obviously were like, if you're, if you want to ruin your life, you're going to have to pay for it. Um, so, so yeah, they definitely did not think that that was a good path in any way. Um, I will say that being a girl and them being, um, very traditional and their ideas of like gender roles, I think to some extent they were like, oh, it doesn't really matter because when she gets married, she won't have to worry about that. You know, like that's not really what her job will be. She'll just, she'll take care of the kids, um, or something like, or that basically that I don't have to be the breadwinner. Um, so I think that in that way they were a little bit less stressed overall, but, um, but not that that's a good thing. Yeah. So I, this is interesting because uh, one of the, you know, in the questionnaire I have everyone fill out to kind of get background. I'm always trying to get into the psychology of, of who we are as people and as chefs. 
you early on in high school were a fencer and <laughs> I, I literally don't know a single person until now who was a fencer. And then just hearing you say that, this is interesting. I, I'd like you to like dive into this a little bit. That had to really motivate you. You seem like the kind of person that somebody says, no, you say, fuck you, I'm going to do it. Like, and yeah. fencing early on. So this is like, okay, she's competitive clearly. And you've been trained with a, with a blade in your hand. And then somebody told you you couldn't do it. You're like, I'm going to go do it. Maybe reflect on that a little bit, kind of maybe <laughs> fencing specifically as a technique and art form of discipline. And then maybe your competitive nature and then how that kind of catapulted you into this path. Um, yeah, I, I guess I wouldn't say that I'm competitive. I guess that doesn't make me a really good athlete. And that's why I didn't pursue it, you know, beyond high school. Um, but the part about, um, you know, if somebody says that you can't do it, that you'll, that I like have determination to prove them wrong. Like, I, I think that's more on brand for me. I'm, I would say I'm more determined to prove someone wrong about me um, than I am competitive per se. I don't really care about winning something, but, um, but yeah, fencing was, it was a, I think it was because it was a really sort of obscure sport. I think it's very elegant um, and there's a lot of strategy to it. It's kind of like physical chess um, in a way. And so I think, I think that's really cool. I love the structure of it. Um, I still love watching it. Not that I do that often, but I think it's a really interesting sport. I mean, my, my, one of my children, my older son, um, has like shown some interest. I was trying to find him some place to learn fencing in Portland. Um, but yeah, I just, it's a, it's a really cool sport. I do like, I do like, um, the actual act of doing it. I think it's really interesting, but I think a lot of why I got into it was just because it was something different and, um, yeah, just wanting to do something different. Were you any good at it? Um, yeah, I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't bad at it. I did go to the Junior Olympics for fencing in foil. There's, so there's different types of fencing. Um, and I, I was a foil uh, specialist, I guess, uh, so foil fencer. And, um, and there were Junior Olympics in, I don't remember, Louisville maybe that year that I went. I remember going to and ranking. Um, but I'm not, I wouldn't say that I was like amazing. I just think, I thought it was really cool. And I was into it. Yeah, that that it strikes me because I'm gonna find a way to bring physical chess back into the conversation at some point. Because like, <laughs> I, I think it's fascinating. I think there's so much of the mechanics of the way that we are in a kitchen. Yeah, it is physical chess. I mean, that's such restaurant. a perfect thing. I'm I'm literally st stealing chess. that. I'm 100% yeah. stealing that, and I'm be telling everybody about it. Because uh, physical chess, that's super interesting. It is very much like this balancing act between being a technician and an artist being a being a an engineer on the fly and also being like just a, a craftsman as well like there's all these just like dynamics at play so i think that's super super interesting so i always like to dig into people's fridges i feel like you learn a lot about people from digging their fridges i i was interested to to read some of what you have i love that you got barbecue chips <laughs> i'm a I'm a cosine fan on those <laughs> sunflower oil. You had the Banyuls vinegar. And then you just said dairy of what'd you say? Exactly. Think of every form of dairy, every, every form of dairy. I was like, perfect, especially cheese. And then you have peppermint ice cream. I just think it's fascinating. I was like, okay, cool. We could hang out. Like I get, <laughs> I get where you're at. I get how you nosh and stuff. I was also fascinated that 
none of those seemed distinctly Russian. And then it got me thinking like, I wonder if you eat so much, you're so inundated with it because you're so committed to it on the restaurant side that sometimes you're like, the last thing I want is some pickled herring when I get home because I've, I've, I've had so much of it. Is there a little bit of, of that there or you just happen to list these things out because they were top of mind? There's a little bit of that though. I will say, so sunflower oil is actually incredibly Russian. Uh, sunflower oil is to Russia and Ukraine um, and Belarus what olive oil is to Italy or in Spain. Um, it's the the cooking oil, and um, I um, have grown incredibly fond of it, both as a finishing oil and as a cooking oil. So that is definitely very Russian. Um, uh, and then the other thing about dairy of any kind is also very Russian. I mean, sour, I, I often to explain people kind of the importance of sour cream, for example, I explain it as uh, Russia's mother sauce. So it's, it's the, it's the, it's one of the mother sauces of Russia for sure. Um, and it goes in everywhere and plays a part everywhere. Um, and so I think my love of dairy is very much genetic <laughs> um, because if you know anything, if you, once you like learn a little bit more about the sort of uh, Eastern European diet, cultured liquid dairy is incredibly important. I would say, again, like a, like a, a pillar of what people, what their diet is. Oh, that's so great to hear. I'm just the the roots of food is so interesting to me. And, and so sour cream is the sour cream of the Soviet union of Eastern Europeans of Russia. Is it the sour cream that people know in America? Because I'm, I'm very interested in that because knowing having lived in Europe and seeing how things we call here, what they actually are there can be wildly different. Uh, I'm interested in the flavor profile, especially the texture of it. Is it? Yeah, is it I mean, I don't want to get into like a. I don't want to get into like a huge rant about sour cream, but it is something I'm pretty passionate about. When just a little rant. To, just a little rant. When you go into like Safeway, let's say, um, and you go get sour cream, the thing that you're buying is not actually sour cream. So even like, it's not that it's, yeah, it's just it's not that we're doing it differently here. It's that we're not doing it at all. Um, it's actually milk or cream or what a mix of milk and cream that is artificially thickened with gums and then um, soured uh, for flavor. So it's not actually typically a fermented product. Um, and there's often optical whiteners in it as well. So it's all sorts of wrong. Um, and so I always urge people to look at the ingredient label when they're buying sour cream and it should literally just have one ingredient. It should be cultured cream. That's it. That's all it is. So if, you're, if your package has anything else other than that, then it's not actually soured cream. Um, so it's not that Russia does it differently. It's that Russia's just doing it the way it's supposed to be. And that they're not alone. I mean, most of the world that has cultured cream in their diet makes actually cultured cream. It's just commercialization and, you know, all the things that we do to make things shelf stable and quote unquote safer um, have turned it into a Frankenstein food. Yeah, that's why I wanted to ask. Uh, that was a perfect amount of rant because I couldn't <laughs> I agree with that more. more. <laughs> I, 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 I can imagine that you can. And honestly, I'm, 
I'm very interested in those things. And, and that's why I ask these questions is because I'm selfishly want to know kind of how we are evolving or devolving our food systems and our food cultures and having had cultured cream in Germany and Poland and, and Scandinavia, like it's a completely different product. So I'm, I'm super the interested. The culture in itself that. can vary, obviously, and that is very regional. What, you know, what crema tastes like, for example, is different than what Smetana tastes like, but they are both literally just cultured cream. It's just that the regional bacteria and microbes that are culturing it make it taste a little different, but at least they're all the same thing, really, which is important. I am with you 100%. Everyone who listens, everyone who knows me knows that I am a thousand percent a fermentation nerd. I yeah. even will native capture yeasts and bacteria and utilize them in, in dishes and stuff. So I am all about it. And that segues really nice into, we're already doing it, but we always like to, to start with some, some of our origin story. We get really deep dive and, and uh, profound with the people that have an impact on us. In the middle, we like to have a little bit of fun and playful. So we play these little best served on icebreaker games. And typically these are fun facts and things that I kind of like to just be a research nerd and, and dive into that are of interest or expertise of my guests. However, with Soviet Union, Russian cuisine, Eastern European block cuisine, there's so much and we are so uneducated, which is clearly a mission in your life is to bring your culture, your cuisine into the forefront and all the accolades clearly speak to that you are kicking ass in that realm. I wanted to take it to a more personal place though and actually just have you lay some groundwork for us on what is at the table when we're talking about a Russian meal. And so we're gonna play a little game called Priyatnava Appetita. How, how did I do? Did, did I butcher well. that? All right, all right. <laughs> I practiced a little bit today. That for everybody who does not know, it basically means enjoy your meal, bon appetit, kind yeah. of a, a pre-meal yeah. saying. So I'm very interested in, in reading a little bit about you and just thinking about our industry as a whole and human beings, like breaking bread together, coming to the table together is so, so important to building bridges, to connecting with your family, with your tribe. And clearly that was important to you. And so I wanted just to take a couple minutes to actually maybe highlight four or five items that really lay the foundation for a Russian family meal. When you come together, give us some of those, kind of those building blocks. And on that, I want to go to a weird place first though. I want to know a little bit about aspic and the amount of jellied foods in the pantheon of Russian cuisines. <laughs> you guys are really into jellied foods and I have a very love-hate relationship with them and having had some, uh, you know, zakuski kind of those, I don't know, for people listening, antipasti or charcuterie, kind of these, these uh, extensive different condiments and pickled goods and things like that and a lot of different jellied items. So start us there, which is a weird place, and then maybe get into actually some things that are important to you at the table. Jellied items, um, why? I mean, <laughs> well, I would say that 
there aren't, I, I don't know that there's like a huge pantheon of jellied items, but there are a couple of dishes that are just really important and you just see them a lot. Um, so it's not like there's like hundreds of different jellied things. It's just that this, these one or two things you see a lot of the time and maybe people have variations, but it's, um, there's something called or studien, which are kind of kissing cousins. Some people say that there are different words for different types of meat. Um, but really, it's meat and aspic, and it's cold. Um, I, so the thing that's really funny to me about it is that Americans think that it's so weird, but this is, I, I, started, I started thinking about this when I was trying to explain to more and more people about why it's not weird. Like, jello is gelatin and sugar and fruit. So it, it's, but its base is gelatin, which is derived from animals and has naturally a animal porky flavor too. If you just smell a packet of gelatin on its own, um, it's, it does not smell like it should go in a dessert. Um, and so what's bizarre to me is that jello is not considered weird and freaky because you're taking something meaty and comes from an animal and turning it into a dessert. So that's the weird one to me. Um, anyway, chaladiths is taking that same the gel gelatinous parts that bones the, that have a natural amount of gelatin. Uh, uh, veal feet are a really good example that have a lot of natural gelatin. And you basically make a stock um, and then braise with the, the veal feed, usually another like more meaty part. And then you pick off all the meat and chop up the nice gelatinous parts of the feet, uh, mince them up, arrange them with garlic in a pan, and then pour the liquid that they were cooking in that's now really, really viscous because it has so much natural gelatin in it, and then let it set and get cold. So it's basically like a jello mold, but more authentic and real than the fruit jello mold that you think is the OG, I guess. Does that make sense? This is this is exactly perfect. It's it's funny, the, the same reason I asked the sour cream question, I asked this question is because when I said love hate relationship, I'm fucking freaked out by sweet jello. It <laughs> you should be. It, it totally it totally weirds me out when we're eating this crystal clear neon green stuff that's super sweet that comes from animal bones maybe it yeah. used to come from animal bones i don't even know what the hell it comes from anymore i think sure that it still does. Uh, pro hopefully hopefully it's still some kind of animal product who knows I, I think that more meat needs to be in jelly <laughs> like yeah. and i think i think you think of like uh you know uh fromage de tete like head cheese things like that yeah. is such amazing delicious, delicious stuff yeah. i think the same thing with pies all the time i'm like a meat pie is amazing why don't we embrace that here so i'm with you 100 percent. and uh and so thank you for giving us some depth of understanding of stop eating fucking neon jello people please yeah it's eat so some funny meat know, jelly like all those little like YouTube things of like introducing somebody to uh, Russian food or whatever. I don't know. I've seen a lot of these people send them to me. And so it'll be like a bunch of like 
I don't know, 20 something year olds eating Russian food. And it's supposed to be funny because they're like, oh my God, this is so weird and gross. And it drives me crazy because Chalet is almost always on there on those sorts of like little memes. And um, I, it just, it's so disrespectful. And I guess that's kind of my big beef is, and that's what we focus on is getting Americans to not think that Russian food is just something to laugh at. Um, it is so incredibly frustrating that that seems to be the MO more often than not is like how ridiculous it is. And it's like, no dude, neon jello is ridiculous. You know what I mean? Yeah. We need to definitely embrace that foods outside of what we know are amazing and relevant and delicious and we do some weird shit to food and we need to come to terms with that a little bit. So that's right. why I appreciate being able to have this conversation. All right, give us a couple more. What are a few more items that can introduce people to like some of what is so, so important and like in your DNA when it comes to Russian cuisine? What else yeah. is at the table that's important to talk about? I mean, so when it comes to zakuski specifically, which is, I mean, the bulk of a meal is zakuski. It's like cold dishes, preset. You mentioned tapas. It is not dissimilar from that, I guess, but they are um, always preset. People show up um, at someone's home, and if it's done right, there is a huge spread that is covered um, that you shouldn't be able to see the table, um, and there should be a huge variation. Um, so as a result, it's typically things that you can get from your larder that are historically important. So all forms of pickled and cured, um, because to create a spread that large, whenever anybody's coming over, you have to, you can't obviously prep that all in one day. So you have to pull from your larder. So that's kind of how it's thought about. So it's pickles, um, you know, cured fish, smoked meats, um, that sort of stuff that you see a huge variety of. And so I think more importantly is the genre of zakuski rather than one specific dish. Um, some of the things that besides kaladietz, which is a great example of a zakuska, um, herring under fur coat is a really classic one. It's a layered uh, salad with um, salt cured herring. I point that out because everybody thinks that the only form of herring that there is is pickled herring, but pickled herring is actually a Nordic uh, form of uh, preservation for herring. Uh, in Russia, it's usually salt packed or, or brined um, and that's, and then, and then um, preserved in oil. Um, that's usually more, much more common. Um, so that's, and um, let's see here, uh, as far, and then, um, Beyond zakuski, there's um, pirashki. So you mentioned meat pies. So um, all form of pie, it, uh, savory pie is huge in Russia. So there's something called kulibyaka, for example, which is like a large fish pie. That's like a, like a family style fish pie that's really beautiful and ornate. Uh, kurnik, which is a chicken version of that. Those are both like pre-revolutionary, very, very historically important. Um, there are little hand pie versions of all of these called piroshki, um, which are that yeast dough that's filled with something usually savory. I mean, they do do fruit ones as well. And that's kind of like Russia's street food. Um, so that's really important. Um, dumplings, so pilmeni are Russian, varieniki are Ukrainian. And those are both really, really important. I, uh, mostly, I think, these days because they are kind of like an, an uh, original freezer food and so they're great for you know busy families or you know in the 70s it was considered to be quote-unquote bachelor food um but uh siberian pilmeni um 
they kind of came about because families would make them and throw them into the snow to freeze them um, and then hold them frozen so they don't stick to each other. And um, hunters that would be going out on expeditions would just have a bag of frozen, like a sack, sack um, on their belts um, of these frozen dumplings. And then since there's always snow in Siberia, um, you just like scoop up a pot of snow and put it over your campfire for the night and then boil some dumplings. So it was like an OG freezer food that was like meant to be easy. And um, um, anyway, it, it stuck around and it's so incredibly essential. Um, did I get, is that enough? I, I lost track, I lost count. I love it. I was going to let you keep going. I, this is this is really good stuff. I'm always so curious and and really like inspired by the ingenuity that it takes to like survive, yeah. and then how people have been in every culture across the world been able to create really delicious things out of nothing, out of being able to like survive, and then now we are able to. Man, are we lucky to be able to take a, a frozen Siberian dumpling and say, how could I reimagine that now that I am not fighting my, for my survival, right. uh, yet still trying to like connect it in a meaningful way and not have it be hollow. So I, I think it's really, really great. And just the passion that you have for it is clear. And so I think this is important for people to hear this because whatever importance that they hold to their thing, giving her and the, uh, the what you're talking about and I, I just think it's interesting right. nobody's wrong per se in having their connection to food maybe it's wrong that we eat that neon jello but their connection to the neon jello is real That's for them important. so it's yeah. it's it's kind of it's kind of polarizing in that way which i think is very interesting and, and that's that's food this is great i mean this is overly selfishly i just want to ask these questions of people that are experts in their lane because i'm just fascinated about it and now i'm going to go seek these things out i'm going to try and cook them myself and go that was okay at best and then plan my trip to kachka like that's the way <laughs> my brain and my world works so appreciate that let's segue right into we started talking some family we talked about some of the dishes that are meaningful for you let's talk about some of your people the people that have truly impacted you inspired you and that you can see those direct correlations to who you are as a chef as a restaurateur as a leader a leader within your four walls but also a leader out there championing championing i can't even say the word out as a thought leader for Russian cuisine, for Soviet cuisine, and who is that for you? The first person you can remember really sparking something in you? I mean, the person that's probably most essential to what we do and what sort of drives me day to day would be my grandmother, who the restaurant's named after. But um, I wouldn't say that like that's somebody that, you know, growing up, I was always thinking about her because I didn't really know that much about her when I was a kid but um but well, yeah, let's touch on that because that story is really really powerful and I'd love to hear it told through your voice having read it it was it was deep and profound to to say the least and to be able to celebrate her if in three restaurants now and and, and in a movement basically is really what you're trying to spark uh, maybe you know tell 
your version of, of, of her story a little bit and why it was so important for you to take on the name Kachka. Sure. Um, so my, so my family's Jewish, I should say as background. Um, my, my father's mother, um, so my grandmother, my father's side, um, was in a ghetto during the war, World War II and, um, in Belarus. And it was very apparent that there um, you know, they were digging a big old hole, essentially, um, they, apparent that things were about to go south. Um, she was with a three-month-old uh, child at the time, and she was with, with her, she was like with her parents and some of her younger siblings, all in the same town. And um, they, they, they were trying, they were, she was encouraging them to all escape. And her parents were like, no, if we all go, we're all going to get caught. You should go, please go. And they kind of like forced her to leave in the middle of the night in October, um, going into one of the coldest winters on record. Um, and so she left in the night with her baby in her arms and just like off into the darkness. Um, ended up traveling just away from the front, um, ended up in um, Smolensk, which is in Russia, um, fighting as a partisan. Um, which is like an underground operative, essentially. Um, she buried her son along the way, um, died of cold and starvation. Um, I feel like at that point, I probably just would have sat down and stopped moving. Um, but she just kept barreling on. She met lots of um, challenges along the way. And one of the ones that always stuck out, my dad would tell me stories when I was a little girl. Um, so one of those stories that stuck out to me that um, I always held on to was one where she was challenged by a town warden. Basically the guy was like, you're a Jew, I'm taking you in. And she kept affirming that she's not Jewish, she's Ukrainian. Um, Ukrainians have a little darker complexion, so a Belarusian Jew kind of can use that as a cover potentially. Um, and so she said, she kept affirming that she's Ukrainian. And so the guy was like, oh yeah, if you're Ukrainian, how do you say duck in Ukrainian? Utka, um, it is in, in Russian. And um, they're all very close, but none of the languages are exactly the same. Um, and so she, and she also doesn't really know a lot of Belarusian. She knew um, Yiddish. So anyway, she just spit out Kachka because it happens to be the word in Yiddish and hoped that maybe it was the same. And it happened to be the same word and he let her go. Um, and so that um, moment, obviously, and she had dozens of moments like that. It's not like this was the one saving grace, but it's really amazing, you know, that she kept persevering um, and this little this little word and this little story really stuck with me always and so um, when we thought about how to name the restaurant and what the restaurant was about and what it was for um, this word kept peeking into my uh, mind um, so I knew that it had to be it but I always you know again like if I'm having a tough time I think about like you you get, this is nothing, you know, like, please, you're, this is child's play, um, and the kind of bravery and courage, I mean, she ended up, like, being awarded a bunch of medals and stuff for the work that she did as a partisan, she buried a child along the way, um, you know, it's just, it's amazing when, you know, it seems like to me, if I were to be put in those situations, would I have the gumption and the perseverance, um, and the bravery to keep moving forward. And I hope that I'll never have to be tested in that way. Um, but whenever I feel like I'm being tested, I just, I remember about that. And so that word for me is really important. Yeah, Bonnie, that's, 
I mean, the, the fact that you have that perspective is so important. It's very, it's very interesting to me. This is, I mean, as, as a monumental as it gets as a, a human being to be able to survive in, in the way that she did and, and even find a, find a way to flourish. And so I, I think it's interesting in a couple of ways. First, like this thesis of this whole show is like really valuing and focusing on why and who before what and how, because we get so caught up in the minutia of the what and the how that we, we forget that why and who is what truly matters. Why we get out of bed in the morning and who we're doing this for, who got us to this point, and who is it that's, that's alongside us to really allow us the opportunity. And so I think that's clear that you, like, the dishes that you're cooking don't matter as much as why you're doing it and who you're doing it for because you're always anchored by the fact that kachka means so much more. And so it's clear that you've taken on it's not just about the food. It's about this message that you're trying to bring. It's about channeling your grandmother. So I, th I think it's really important because also at the end of the day, sometimes we take ourselves too seriously and you're like, look, it's just food <laughs> as well. So like, there's a lot of uh, uh, the duality of, of, of being a human is very much at play. So I think it's very interesting. And I'm sure there's moments where you are reflecting in that way clearly. So I think that's just important for us to think about your why and who is so baked into you that's that has to be why you're one of the reasons you're succeeding your skill obviously is holding court it's just so innate in you clearly that there's no other way that you could cook because you're cooking for not yourself am i am i on the right track there with that that seems yeah i mean well i always i i personally believe that businesses restaurants that succeed um have a reason to exist and if you, if your reason for existing is because, well, I've always wanted to open my own restaurant is the reason that you're doing it. I feel like you're probably doing it wrong. And that's just my opinion, obviously. And I'm sure I'm going to make somebody angry in saying that, but I, I mean, like it's a really hard business. And so you need something beyond just, I really wanted to always open my own place to, to drive you. And so I feel like you have a story to tell you're doing it in somebody's honor or memory or, you know, whatever it is. Um, but you have to have something beyond just this it seems like a cool job to do. Um, and so, yeah, I, I mean, I don't think that I could possibly be um, successful or feel successful if I didn't have an agenda that was beyond just paying the bills, because that's clearly not why anybody opens a restaurant, or I hope that's not why anybody opens a restaurant. Yeah, you can feel it when you go to restaurants like that. There's, there's a emptiness a hollowness because there is there's no there's no why and who there's yeah. that north star and that anchor you need both the north star guides you towards something bigger than yourself and the anchor keeps you grounded so you don't you know get too on your high horse because that's easy to do it's easy yeah. to read too many headlines i have been very guilty of that in the past for sure so <laughs> I, can, I can respect that significantly i don't know how we move on from that but let's move on <laughs> and, and forward in time a little bit give us give us somebody else that that had a major impact on on you and and that you'd like to reflect on and and yeah. acknowledge a little bit sure i mean obviously my parents mainly i mean my my grandmother is more of like a background story that i i look to now but like my my parents are the sort of example of how to work your butt off and 
put family first and um, be, yeah, be dedicated. Um, and um, I, we, I mean, we still essentially, it's still a family business in, in that like they're so dedicated and they are so passionate about making sure that I am successful because I'm their child that, you know, they will do, they will drop anything to like, if I call them right now and say, I need you to, to drive to Seattle right now to pick something up for me, they would totally do it. They wouldn't even question it. Um, not that I've ever asked them to do that, but I'm just like trying to think of something ridiculous. Um, so they're just so incredibly supportive um, and just willing to do whatever um, because it's family. Um, that that's, that's just, I mean, I don't know that everybody has that. And I guess I took that for granted um, until I was an adult and um, really saw how many other family structures exist out there and that this isn't normal. Um, and so, the, I mean, that, that affects the way that I interact with my children. It also affects the way that I treat my staff um, because to me, they're part of my family. Um, and so I, I feel like having that duty is so incredibly important. Um, and yeah, and then just more specifically, they're just inspirational in that, I mean, the food that my mother cooked and cooks is a huge part of what we try to emulate or riff off of at the restaurant. So, I mean, she, just from a cooking perspective has been um, really influential for me. And I continue to, even if it's not something that like she ever makes, if it's a dish that's like something in the sort of traditional Belarusian or Russian canon, I'll like talk to her about it first. And be like, well, how would you make it? Or how have you made this before? Um, so I, like, it's a pretty regular conversation with us just to get some background info. Um, so yeah, so there's a million ways. They also watch our kids. Um, and since my husband and I both own the restaurant together, watching our two kids is basically a full-time job. I feel like they see our children more than we do. So, I mean, like, that's, that's just crazy. You know, like we, we dump our kids on them all the time and they, they never say no and they never bat an eye. They're always like, yes, what time, when do you need us there? I was going to ask if they were still in Chicago. So they are in Portland with you, yeah, it sounds like. So, and then we uh, never, ever could have opened this restaurant without them being here. It just, it would be literally impossible. Um, or we would just spend every single dime that we make paying for childcare. It takes a village is such a, a true statement. I was so enthralled with the story of your grandmother. I always like to know everyone's actual names. What was your grandmother's name? And then what are your parents' names? Uh, Rahil is her name was her name, excuse me. And um, my parents are Luba and Seymour, or Slava in Russian. Okay, and your mother, so your mother was, was the cook. I'm interested in this, my mother, amazing cook as well. And now, technically speaking, I'm a better cook. I have more chops, <laughs> more skills, whatever it might be. Yet every time I try to cook one of her dishes, it's not as good, it's just not. Yeah. And I'm very interested in that dynamic. Do you find that, that somehow she doesn't cut the potatoes right? She doesn't do this right? Yeah. The technique is not flawless? She, would, she doesn't know anything about French hot cuisine and the techniques that I know, yet she cooks this dish and damn it, it's better. Do you, do you find that a little bit? Do you guys joke about that? Absolutely. I mean, Does she keep two, you in your place in that sense? There's two things to unpack there. One is that's 100% true. Like, um, there, there are dishes that my husband will have that she makes regularly and that we've, that I either made at the restaurant or 
made at home and he'll be like hers is better so like he more he, like more comes from him you know like we don't necessarily joke back and forth but like my my husband will razz me um and it's infuriating because you're like i literally can't think of anything i'm doing differently how is this possible um and there's that but then the other thing that you you tapped on that i want to point out is you said like i know every little bit about french cuisine um well like i often think about that that like going to culinary school and most kitchens you work in are all based on a language um of of the french kitchen and methodology of the french kitchen and um that that's not fair to the you know thousands of other cultural cuisines out there that why the why the fuck should you be framing it as as french right so like why is it better to to make this sauce using a French technique. Why, you know, why is it like a really good example is onions and frying onions or caramelizing onions, I should say. There's a very specific way and true technique that you're supposed to caramelize onions. But I will tell you that when my mother caramelizes onions, she does it differently and it tastes not better or worse. It's just different and therefore flavors the food in a different way. I don't even have a word for how she does it. You know, it's like, I call it like home cook style because it's like unevenly cooked and parts are really hard fried and other parts are still blonde. But that ends up being a better backbone for that dish than a true caramelized onion would be. So like that's a really good example of how we fail often in professional kitchens is that we always assume that the French technique to doing this thing you know when you read a recipe and you're like oh that's just x y like you basically unpack it and say oh well that's that method and that's this and this is what they're doing here and you just like make assumptions instead of actually going through the process and i feel like um that's kind of the difference there is like you take all of those little details that your mother's doing her way and just glaze over them as being like, oh, well, that's this French technique and that's this thing and da da da, you're gonna end up with a totally different result without even realizing it because you're glazing over these things that are intentionally different because not everything has to be through a French paradigm, you know? I could not agree more. I think we're too literal, I mean, as people, but the how rigorous we think or the rigor that we force ourselves into in cooking, I think, is the antithesis of creativity and cooking is so fluid it's so much more i don't know of a dance like than it than it is like these building blocks and i think to your point if we always are trying to subvert somebody else's uh intention of cooking a certain way because it's not what we deem the proper way we're doing a disservice to cooking as a whole yeah, and I think that's I think that's super super important, and it's I think it's why our moms are better cooks better than cook. us sometimes, yeah. because they are not bound by somebody else's rules. Now I think there's something to to know techniques as a as a a building block, but when it becomes dogma, when mm -hmm. when we like are religious about it that's then when we start to if our way is better somebody else's way has to be worse and that's when you get in right. trouble i think it's very important to have solid foundational techniques and the fact that the french organized it and then it became the schooling that we all got fine i i take away good value but i've learned a lot more from japanese techniques than i have from french techniques if i'm honest 
as I've gone gone on but even that like it's all about just using those as techniques and tools in in an experience but when it's dogma that's when it becomes scary yeah Yeah. I think I think that's a great point all right clearly family has set an unbelievable foundation uh move us forward I'm, I'm interested when then you is it maybe culinary school or is it maybe working in some of these high-end restaurants? Maybe who is somebody that really crystallized what it meant to be a chef that really laid that uh, groundwork for you to say, okay, I, I get now that I'm going to be a chef and this person really was instrumental and formative for you in that way. Is there somebody that that rings true for? I mean, unfortunately, um, no. <laughs> I, I think that I had lots of examples of reasons to not stay in the industry and lots of really bad leadership, um, lots of really abusive and unnecessarily stressful dynamics in kitchens, lots of misogyny. And I almost, I, I left restaurants. I, I ended up work, moving to the front of house um, after a particularly bad work experience. And I thought, you know, maybe, and I was, re- I'm really into, I'm really into education and to learning. And I got really into learning about wine at one point. And so I ended up working in front of house and that's actually how my husband and I met. Um, and then after we met, like I, you know, I was a sommelier for a while. Um, I ended up, um, after we got married and had our first kid, I actually um, managed um, a department in a high-end grocery store for a while. And I had no intention of going back into restaurants unless it was um, mine um, and something that I, and, and I mean, that's, that's around the same time we started talking about opening Kachka because yeah, I, I'll tell you like, <laughs> I, I, a lot of times when people ask you like, who are your mentors? I, and people have these amazing stories about how some chef took somebody under their wing and, you know, really showed them the value of hard work and, you know, how to be a professional and all these cool techniques and stuff. I'm like, honestly, no, I just feel like I got shit on a lot. Um, which is also something to talk about. Um, yeah, let's, let's hover on that. that not I, I think that that's, I think that's okay. Professionals in the industry, but you know, not everyone that's not everyone's story, you know? Yeah, I think your experience is, is a lot of people's experience. So uh, I'd like to stay with that a little bit. Not to dwell on, on how you got shit on in all those ways. I'm very interested in how you took that because clearly uh, perseverance is something that is in your DNA. And so you found your way back to it after saying, fuck this, I'm out. And and I'm very, very interested in that because we find ourselves getting ourselves into and out of the industry in all kinds of different ways. And so I'd be interested to know kind of what now you take as the way that you want to run your restaurants and your kitchen. And you yeah. touched on how that, how a few things have changed the way and informed the way that you are with your staff. So maybe connect those dots because you had a bad experience throughout and it you you got to the point where you're almost jaded out of the industry i think a lot of people have that experience so let's yeah let's hover on that and maybe turn it into the positive that you have (laughs) yeah i think that i mean there are a few things one is there are some times when i wish that i had not like quit at one point you know like i don't i don't want to be a quitter um and i do regret you know i and i see that a lot in cooks now like if they have a hard you know 
week, and that, and that might not be interpersonal, but just in general, have a hard week about something, you know, and then they're like, I can't do this anymore. I think I'm done with this industry. And you're like, no, like, you know, stay with something, be present to keep, just keep trying for a little while, give yourself a year, you know, whatever, stay in the moment. Don't worry about moving up. Like there's so much of that. Um, anyway, so I just, I there are things about that, that I, I wish that I had done differently. Um, but uh, when we first opened Kachka, I found myself sort of backsliding into, I guess not backsliding is the wrong word. I guess I never, I never intentionally thought about what kind of a boss I wanted to be, what kind of a chef I wanted to be. Like there was no intention to it. It was just kind of naturally what came out was a lot of mimicking of what I had experienced. And I feel like for the first year or so, I was probably not very pleasant to be around. Um, and I was unyielding and um, just on just not compassionate um, in any way. Um, and so I realized that at one point, and this might seem super obvious, but I was like, at one point I realized like, wait, I don't actually have to be this way. This is my restaurant. No one's, I don't have a boss. I can make decisions about what kind of culture I want to have and how I want to treat people and what I think is okay and what I think is not okay. Um, and so actually having some intention to it and taking a step back and thinking like, well, how do I want to treat this person in this situation? How would I want to be treated? Um, and I, you know, thankfully got to turn things around to, I think what I, the kind of place that I would want to work for. And I think also in owning your own restaurant, um, I don't know, I think the personnel part of it is not in most people's brains um, at all. Like kind of what you were saying, it's never really about the why and the who, you know, it's the what, and <laughs> what's going on the plate. Um, and so in much the same way, I never really thought about, well, who are these people that are working for me? And um, the more we did it, the more I realized that, holy shit, every single employee we have has a choice to be here. Um, they don't have to work for me. They can work for hundreds of other restaurants in town or go to another city. There's a lot of fluidity to it. They choose to be here and how I am honored that they choose to continue to be here. I mean, not always. Sometimes people are dicks and they, you know, two weeks in don't show up for the next shift. But for the most part, I love my staff and I love the work that they put in for us and there's no way that we would be able to have a restaurant if they weren't here um, and they choose to be here and so I just more and more my thinking and what sort of yeah what sort of leads my decision making is you know making sure that I'm grateful um, I'm fair you know I'm not I'm not a pushover but I'm grateful and I'm appreciative and I try to make sure to show people my appreciation that they exist and that they're here. They choose, choose to be here doing what they could be doing elsewhere. So I don't know, that's, that's something that was never really given to me. And I now am proud that I get to do that and for other people. Yeah. You flipped the script and like wrote out the way that you want to be in the world. There's two words that you use that I, uh, herald and cosign with a thousand percent choice and and grateful gratitude I, I think that's so key that they even more so today have so many more choices right because a lot of things have shifted the industry the gatekeepers have changed they don't need the quote-unquote high-end chef to resume build and teach them 
the mystical arts of the culinary world, like right. they can be passionate about dumplings, Siberian dumplings, have a YouTube channel talking about <laughs> Siberian culture and sell direct to consumer and right. make $120,000 a year doing what they love. So the dynamics have shifted. And if we spend all of our time finger pointing and wagging and being like kids these days, which they said to us and they said before that, and they've said before that for a hundred generations, we're, 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 we're missing the mark and the opportunity. So I spent a lot of time talking to owners, like, don't get caught in that loop. And I spent a lot of time talking to culinary students, young people, like, don't get sidetracked by all of the things out there. Like, be focused on something and, yeah. and don't be a dick and two weeks in, just no call, no show. It goes both ways. And I think we need to hold ourselves all to a higher standard. So I love that you took that negative again. This is in your DNA clearly and, and turn it into a positive at the restaurant. And let's like stick with, with Kachka and, and your new tribe, your family. Uh, I know we want to talk about, uh, you mentioned your husband, Israel, I think is so important to, I mean, the success of the restaurant, but more so over the success of you and your team and, and holding everybody together. And, and, and I want to dig into that. So I'd love for you to tell us about who he is to you. And then also this is the time, like, mention some of your staff like I know how important clearly I can hear how important they are to you just throw out some names of, of people that are are meaningful to you today as you guys navigate owning three restaurants in a competitive city like Portland in a you know, ever-evolving food scene yeah I mean so there would be no Kachka if there were, if Israel didn't exist in my life um he um, was the person. So when we were dating, we were both working um, together at a Hyatt restaurant. And so I, the, one of the things that I think we were attracted to each other about is that we were sort of equally passionate about food more so than everybody else around us, just sort of at a higher level and talked about it at a higher level. And I, you know, we were both drawn to the fact that we could talk to each other in that way. And so I respected and do respect his opinions and his palate like be, I think more than anyone else and um he had got we were dating and we went over to my parents house and um you know I gave him the spiel I gave every person who'd ever you know friend or boyfriend that had ever gone for dinner um at a relative's house or at a, a family function and I was like you're this food is going to be super weird you know, meat jello, right? Um, and it's going to be weird. You're not going to like it. You should probably come fed and like sorry in advance, essentially. And he went after that first function. He was like, what are you talking about? That was amazing. That blew my mind. When can we do that again? And um, I always had sort of a lot of just like negative feelings about the cuisine. No sort of self-respect for it i just thought that it was embarrassing and not worth anyone's time and um his like totally different viewpoint on it totally just the fact that he was into it and that blew my mind and so it changed my perspective changed the way i thought about the food made me realize that you know it's the food's not broken it's the people around it being disrespectful you know and i had sort of as a as a child of immigrants had like allowed the people around me telling me that it was weird i had allowed them to infiltrate you know my 
sense of self. And anyway, I got a lot, I got, because of him, I became a lot more proud of the food. Um, and so it was basically his idea that we pursue this. Um, and like, I am now, like now our goal more than anything, what we do day to day is yes, we own a restaurant and we want to restaurants and we want to make sure that they thrive and that we pay our bills. But my main objective in life is to get more people to recognize this cuisine as something worth, uh, worth eating. Like when you're going through your mental Rolodex of stuff you want to eat tonight and you're like, I don't know, do you want to get sushi or pizza or some Chinese or you know, like you want to go to that new Peruvian place um, that like, why isn't Russian in that in people's regular Rolodex? Um, and that's like, that's my main objective. And that's, that's all because of him. Um, and so there's nothing about what we do here. That's not, that cannot be attributed to him. Uh, not to mention the fact that he's my sounding board. He's my editor. Um, he runs the dining room and the beverage program and you know, does payroll and stuff like that. So there's all that, but he, you know, like I don't, I, I talk to him about my ideas and dishes that I'm thinking about. And when I'm in sort of like a, when I'm stuck sometimes, you know, like I just talk things through with him when it comes to food, like he's helpful in that way. Um, but then furthermore, the thing that I think is really frustrating is that his position, like, first of all, with my, me being the chef, um, and people want to talk about the restaurant and the, the sort of culture we have now is that it's all about the chef. Um, and so nobody wants to talk to Israel, but that's bullshit because he's just as much this restaurant as I am. Um, and has as much to say and is just as passionate and is just as involved. And so I think there's just something sort of broken in our, the way we, idolize the chef specifically and nobody else but when it comes to like people who run programs like why are there not more awards and recognition of like best gm of the year or you know what i mean like why is service director not relevant i had a food reviewer once tell me that he doesn't even write about service because he assumes he's getting better service than he's supposed to because he's a food reviewer. And I was like, that's bullshit. Then look at the people around you, pay attention. Service is an incredibly important part of the equation. And by not recognizing that and writing about it, you're basically telling service professionals that they don't matter. So I get really, really upset that he personally doesn't get as much credit as he deserves, but that just service professionals don't get as much credit as they deserve. Bonnie, so. I got to tell you that you said so many important things in that statement. <laughs> we literally could have an entire podcast about what you just talked about. It well, touched you on talk so, Israel, you know? it's so many points. And that is why this show exists so that your episode and everybody's episode always has a second voice. And I'm very excited that we will be talking to Israel for your episode. <laughs> That's the point of this, is that we are, are acknowledging, celebrating, recognizing truly all the people. My goal in this show is that every single person in the industry's name will be mentioned on this show. And if it takes fucking five lifetimes, I'm game. And so there's a couple things that were very personal to me. One is how important our cultural foods are and how easy it is to slip into this place of feeling. I mean, like you said, you just, you felt like ashamed of it. And it's very interesting for me because my grandmother is from Kyoto, Japan. 
Bachan, Yaiko is her name and was her name. And she went through a lot of things as well uh, that are just unbelievable to me. And then she came to America and was so afraid of the stigma of being Japanese that her kids never touched Japanese food, had no idea of its, of its history and its heritage and of its, its importance and yeah. Americanized them and they ate shit canned food. And my mom used to talk about this game they play, the brother, they would take the wrappers off of the cans and you'd pick three different cans and mix them together and eat whatever it was. And it was probably <laughs> neon jello and, and the like. And then my, my mom was so like, we, we have to celebrate it. And so I learned more about Japanese food from my mother than I did for my grandmother. And later on, then she, she got more comfortable with it. And then she would bring like little tiny, tiny dishes of like natto and funky, weird fermented stuff that I just like appalled because it smelled so gross. And I still can't do natto, but most of the things I eat now yeah. and it just, it's, it's that. And I, you know, I hijacked that story a little bit, but it, I think no, other people have that and it's personal and it's important. And the fact that you got that validation from Israel, that he's like, you're nuts. This is awesome. Like your mom yeah. is a gangster. She's like you said, OG cooking stuff. That's absolutely delicious. And I like that your parents, they stuck with it because they could have gone the other way. And lots of immigrants yeah. do go the other yeah. way. So I think it's very important service. Oh, it's yeah. everything. It's the only thing that matters. You know, there's lots of adages. Like people will go to a restaurant that has has great service and mediocre food, but they'll never go back to a restaurant that has mediocre service and great food. And so it's so, so important. And I think, again, yeah, the idolizing of chefs, it created a lot of dynamics that are very interesting. It did do some very positive things where all of a sudden people cared about the people making their food. Open kitchens I love because now cooks have a have a direct connection. Guests aren't just nameless, faceless people that send back food and make weird requests, right? Like that humanized the whole, uh, the, the whole process. And there was some, the potential for meritocracy, but then it became very, very lopsided. And all of a sudden, you know, we started reading all of our own headlines. Like I said, every time I took my people for granted and I did that, like I failed. And when I knew, recognized that I worked for them, I succeeded. So clearly you're doing that. And I'm so excited to be able to talk to Israel. And, and I I'm, I'm, I'm can't wait for some of his perspectives on you. I'm sure there's lots of quips <laughs> oh, and God. sayings and isms. <laughs> and I'm going to get him to give us some fun stuff on you because I think it's important to humanize and to contextualize like who we are as people in the kitchen. And so tell us, who are some of the people that you work with today that you just feel oh. so grateful to have the opportunity to work for? Just, just list for them. Throw some names out there because oh, I want them to hear how important they are. And I'm going to say something before you do that. Think about their names because I know you're going to kick yourself when you forget some of them. So I'm going to give you some seconds of babbling to think about their names. I have not said this on the podcast, but I want to say it because one of the ideas for this podcast and, and long story of why the name is the name. But when you said what you said, it's like, I want to make a high, high end James Beard level awards show ceremony that is for best dishwasher and person oh, most likely yes. to pick up a shift for somebody else. It was yes. literally part of the show. I was like, I want to build an audience that then gives a shit about people at every level of the industry and that we could do something that has that kind of impact because I'm sorry, they matter more. Like the dishwasher is the most important person in the building. That's the first so, person on my list. <laughs> oh, yes. 
Bonnie, we are, we're, we're there. Let's, let's talk about some of these people. Just throw their names yeah. out there because I want them to listen to this episode and go, man, that's awesome that she just, threw my name yeah. out there. Our dishwasher, Roger, is the first person on my list. He's been with us since our, the first day that we opened. He's been with us for six years, and he's amazing. He's only called out like four times in all that time. He's taken one vacation, and not because we can't give it to him, but just because that's all he wants. And he shows up and is amazing. And every time I see his face, I like my whole body relaxes. Like he's just amazing. Anyway, that's he, he deserves way more attention than anyone else I'm going to list only because of just how I mean you just said it, like the most important person in the entire building. I got I gotta um, pause you right there because yeah. everybody in Portland, Oregon listening, when you share this, when the staff's listening to it, when you go to is he at Kachka? Which location? Oh, yeah. yeah, is that Kachka? When you go there, the next time you have great food, don't say compliments to the chef ask to see Roger. Roger that is my that is yeah. my challenge to everybody who goes to Kachka well, the, the funny story about Roger is that um there was some we uh old Kachka we moved to a bigger space so our kitchen's a little bit more enclosed but our um old kitchen was pretty open and um the dish pit you see like straight ahead mm. all the way at the end when you walk in the door and he has he used to have really really long hair um and so one time some guest was like talking to israel and telling him how amazing everything was and he was like oh is that your wife back there tell her how amazing everything is and so we actually joke about how roger is israel's wife and that he's he's the one in charge because <laughs> this guest thought that he was me um he's amazing he's, and he, he should get all the accolades um yeah you want you want me to Go go down the list. There's so yeah. Throw throw a few few more names out. I'd I mean, love to we, hear more about them. We've got our GM on Elisa, who's amazing. Um, all of my sous chefs, Greg and um, uh, Sophia, who's been with us for almost as long as Roger. Actually, she's a rock. Um, Sergey, who's also been with us for almost as long as Sophia, um, and Francisco. Um, there's Brian, our commissary manager, um, and Deb. Olivia over there. Um, we have John Harper, who is our charcuterie specialist, who is just amazing at taking my ideas and visions and then making them real but better. Um, you mentioned the person who's most likely to cover a shift, uh, Bailey, um, one of our, uh, our line cooks right now, who um, is like straight out of culinary school. He's got it. You know what I mean? Like he He's the guy who always shows up. He's always prepared. He's always asking questions, but he's got, he's one of the guys with the least amount of experience on our line right now, but you could never tell. Um, it's just amazing. Um, you know, our, our leads, uh, um, Spencer and Jackson. Um, I mean, I'm sure I'm forgetting more people. I don't wanna, I don't wanna leave anybody out, you know? Um, there's so many, I mean, like I literally could go down my list of employees and name every single person on there because um, thankfully we've over the years been able to put together a team that we feel like we that want to be here and that we want them to be here and that are respectful and create a really positive work environment and so we're so we've gotten so strong in that way that if one person isn't here, you can't even tell because everyone just instantly picks up the pieces and moves on without even saying a word. Oh, Victoria, our lead prep. Don't want to forget her. Obviously she's a beast and amazing. 
um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I'm blanking obviously now. Um, yeah, oh, that's, Jamie that's... Cassini, our bar manager, who's just like an amazing human being and always here when she's not supposed to be here, which makes me mad at her because I'm like, go have a weekend, but is just so passionate that she can't stop herself. <laughs> I mean, uh, it's so yeah. great. It's clear that your team is important to you. There's a, a saying I love, uh, build a team so strong that nobody knows who the leader is. And I yeah. think that's clearly something important to you. But what I'd say is it was amazing to hear those names. And I think they're going to listen to this and be like, that, that's awesome. Like to get just even a, a second of recognition on a podcast that four people are listening to but whatever like that's so so important that, that you took the time to recognize them the challenge that i always said for my guests is you forgot people you didn't have time to mention people when you share this this episode out of the world or you're listening to it uh you know highlights of it at least this part when people's names are getting mentioned at a all hands meeting or something like that you know to to tell those stories to those other people and be like, and you matter and you matter and you matter. You're going to be like Oprah. You get a car and you get a car, but it's like you just get an acknowledgement because we run restaurants. So we're poor. Like that's, that's what's so exciting about this show. So let's leave everybody like we always like to with a little mantra, some words to live by something to take out in the world and make a better place. And you say, always think about the bigger picture. Now it's yeah. pretty clear from this conversation, what the bigger picture is for you. Just tell us why that is, is some words that really resonate with you and stick with you. Well, it's not even just like any, that doesn't, there actually is no answer to that for me either. It's more that whenever you're considering what's happening, like, I don't know, you hear a news story, let's say, and you're like automatically so set on what your opinion is about it. Like, think about the bigger picture. Like, where does, how does that affect the world around it? And like, why could somebody have a different opinion? I just think that there's so much that is driven by, you know, being on our team and just being like, I don't know, very like head down and focused. And I'm just concerned with my tribe. I'm just concerned with what happens in my little circle. And that like, if you just stop and look outside of your world and think about the bigger picture, what else is happening? How could this possibly be viewed in a different perspective, you know? Um, that changes everything. Um, yeah, I don't know. It just, it applies in so many places and so many things and so many, I feel like so many wars are started because nobody's thinking about the bigger picture, thinking about things from other people's perspective, thinking about how this affects people beyond them, etc. So it's not even just about like my day-to-day -day or anybody's day-to-day, -day, but every little thing that happens out there, don't just form an opinion outright think about the bigger picture. Think, think, you know, think about the other ways this could be viewed. Um, yeah. I just think, think for yourself. Yeah. It's clear thinking deeply and having perspective is so important to you. It's the way that you're living that perspective. And of course the physical chess. See, I found a way very end, but I found <laughs> a way to bring back the physical chess. Absolutely love that. Bonnie Morales. Thank you so much for the conversation. Thanks for your leadership in the industry and for celebrating and bringing to the forefront Russian cuisine, clearly needed and very, very important to you personally. But I think a lot of people are resonating with it and clearly you're, you're building quite the tribe and that team in Portland, Oregon. Appreciate you talking with us. Of course. Thank you so much again for having me. Cheers. So we really got to dive into Bonnie's family history and exciting stuff to hear the stories of some powerful women 
her included and the women that have informed her. And I'm very excited to have the other half of the Morales team, Israel Morales, on the phone. Thank you so much for talking with us. Yeah, of course. It's really exciting to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so Bonnie was adamant about the fact that why don't people do more interviews or podcasts with Israel? And I was like, I'm doing it. I'm on it. We're going to have a great conversation because she definitely knew how important service was to be able to empower what she does as a chef. I am a firm believer of that as well. So I was excited for that opportunity. So before we get into some more contemporary, Kachka, Bonnie, your relationship, your team, some of that, let's go back to the beginning like we always like to do. I'm interested, where are you from originally? Sure, yeah. So I'm from Kansas City, and I think it's important to stipulate the next question is usually which one. I'm from Kansas City, Kansas, not Kansas City, Missouri. So on the Kansas side, born and raised. Understood. I actually spent time in Kansas City. I worked for Debbie Gold at 40 Sardines uh, oh, wow. <laughs> for, for quite a few years. Absolutely. So Kansas City and Kansas City, Missouri. I was on the Missouri side. Uh, Got it. And, Got and it. that's a thing for people who don't know. It's a thing. Oh, which, 100%. Yeah. Which side of Kansas City that you were on. Uh, I mean, I just got to throw it out there. Usually we don't get into, into the weeds like this, but, but barbecue, like where are you going if you're going home and you got one stop for barbecue? Oh, my. Um, you know, I'm on, on the spot. Of, Put you on the spot. Oh, it's, uh, it's Slaps. It's in Wyandotte County. Um, you're going to need to get there before 8 a.m. because it's going to be gone by 1130. You know? I know, I know it. It's, uh, it's a great place. I, yeah. it depends on my mood. If I want to get yelled at, I go to Gates because I love the ladies there yelling at you in line. For sure. And I take some, some sauce home. And if I just yeah. want some real good meat, I tend to go to the original Oklahoma Joe's. So I love oh, yeah. the barbecue culture there for sure. For sure. Yeah. Nothing like standing in line at a gas station. That's the great stuff. And their, and their burnt ends are actually burnt ends. It's legit. Yeah. That's a whole other podcast to get into <laughs> what yeah, burnt ends are. People, oh, people sure. can go down a whole rabbit hole with that. So right. was your first job in the industry in Kansas City? Tell us maybe a little bit about that. That's always interesting to us. Yeah, my first job was working at a Mexican restaurant in Lawrence, Kansas, where I went to college. Um, I worked at a Mexican restaurant called Ixtapa, uh, which is like central Mexican Jalisco food. And... Uh, it's crazy because it was one of those, you know, 12 table restaurants and I was the server, the busser and the cashier. Um, and I would make the salads for some reason. And so it was, it was crazy. I was there for a couple of years and it, it really opened my eyes to, to how much hustle you have to have and how flexible you have to be with, you know, not only talking to people, but, you know, talking to the back of house, too, and, like, managing both of those worlds. Yeah, it was a great experience. Wow, that's amazing to hear uh, Lawrence, Kansas, had kind of authentic Jalisco cuisine because so <laughs> yeah. often in our country, unfortunately, it's like, oh, Mexican food is Mexican food. It's like, nah. From Jalisco, where you have, like, barilla and lots of tequila yeah. to the seven moles of Oaxaca and mezcal to, like, the the sour orange of like the Yucatan, very, very right. deep, the most diverse food culture, maybe outside of China is yeah. definitely Mexico. So I, and Lawrence, Kansas, you don't really expect that. So I love, absolutely love hearing that. Did you catch the bug right away? Were you in or did you right away. tour out of the industry and find it back in? 
No, I mean, I did it. I mean, I did it to pay the bills, you know, being in, being in college. Um, I'll tell you that um, uh, after bouncing around to a couple of other jobs, I moved to Dallas uh, in hopes of going to grad school. And it was there that I caught the bug and I realized that this was this was actually my industry you know, and not what I was going to school for. So um, it, it took a couple of years, you know, it was just uh, uh, utility at that point. But um, it's all really rooted into that, like real hustle and keep your head on a swivel and keep your eyes open that like only those college restaurant jobs can do, you know? Yeah, that hustle is important. And sometimes this the stigma of when you're going to get a quote unquote real job, finally you give yourself <laughs> permission to say, I'm, I'm, I'm in it. I'm in it to win it. So I love that. So tell us then about when you and Bonnie first crossed paths. I believe she said she was working front of house because we talked a little bit about how she got jaded from the kitchen and thought she was almost out and the two of you met. So maybe take us back to that time and, and tell us. Right. Yeah. So um, fast forward a number of years, I moved to Chicago because at that point, I thought if I was going to be serious, um, then I was going to work in a great food city. And so Chicago was, you know, mid, still Midwest and pretty close. And I started working after numerous attempts at really beating down their door. Um, True restaurant, uh, TRU, they, they let me in and they let me in as a, as a back waiter. And I worked my way up uh, to lead captain and then finally dining room manager. Um, and so really, uh, you know, given this span of experience that I had, it was a pretty meteoric rise with the uh, amount of time that I had. And it sounds great, but the reality is, is you know, um, there's nothing that experience, you know, experience teaches you everything. And, you know, uh, just because I had this position didn't mean I know what I was doing. So when Bonnie and I first met, um, I had newly become a dining room manager at a four-star, five-diamond Relais Chateau Gourmand restaurant, who at the time was one of the best places for service in the country. And I was in charge of the dining room. It's crazy. Yeah, I mean, you uh, have icons from the culinary side too. I mean, right, Graham oh, Elliott. Speaking of, of uh, oh, for Kansas sure. City, Colby from Blue Stem, right? He that's cut his right. teeth there. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I forgot about that, yeah. Um, and yeah, and so like, uh, it's really interesting to see that time where there are so many tributaries that came off of that restaurant. Um, and so I was a newly minted dining room manager and we essentially had to find my replacement. Uh, we're looking for a front waiter and Bonnie what, coming off of working at Moto and kind of wanting to get into the wine world, which we were known for wine. Um, she was the first person that I ever interviewed. So she sat down with an interview for me with me and I had never laid eyes on her until then. So, uh, I mean, there we were. She didn't know what she was interviewing for being a front of house position. And I was like this brand new rookie dining room manager who didn't know how to ask interview questions. And uh, it, was a, <laughs> it was a pretty awkward dance, you know? I like that. So you guys stumbled through it somehow, started working together. And first impressions, I mean, uh, what was it like then, you know, connecting with her, now being in that leadership role, having somebody who had the chops in the kitchen, maybe give us a little bit of the insights that you had on kind of who Bonnie was in that time. Yeah, I mean, I will tell you that, you know, my, um, 
my strengths were always um, controlling a room and having the environment and the presence um, to, to, to um, create the experience for guests. But the, immediately I was drawn to Bonnie's like wealth of limitless knowledge. Um, so much knowledge about food and the history of this dish and uh, the proper way of uh, presenting it, of plating it, of serving it. And so really, even though, you know, I had, I mean, in, in all honesty, I had pretty low level of experience given my position, um, I would often like secretly lean on her for some of that real information, um, whereas I could shed some of my, um, my knowledge as far as eloquence on the floor or an ability to control a room or read a guest, those types of things. So it was really mutually beneficial in so many ways. And I think that formed um, the basis of a really strong relationship early on. Yeah, it's clear. I, I talk about trust and confidence being so, so paramount to strong relationships within the industry. So clearly you guys kind of built that up together as you guys are navigating your way. And so now I want to fast forward to something that, that Bonnie said that I thought was so, so important. She talked about how there was a little bit of trepidation on her part, not thinking that Russian cuisine, Soviet cuisine was, was up to snuff with the French cuisine and the hot cuisine and the modern American stuff that she had been working in. And there was actually you that came over for dinner and she was nervous about the fact that you're going to think it's weird. And you came away from that dinner saying that was fucking amazing. And it completely shifted her mindset. Uh, maybe take us to that place a little bit because I think what a pivotal moment that was for now what's happening with, with you guys and Kachka and the, the little mini empire of Soviet cuisine you guys are building in Portland. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know about empire, but yeah, you know, I, I think at the time, um, Bonnie and I were really focused on, and it was kind of a product of where we worked, um, focused on tasting menus. Um, focused on wine pairing tasting menus and things that are, you know, really specific, small morsels and things of that nature. And it's almost very personal, very singular and cerebral. And that's great. It has its place. But going over to her, you know, she invited me to her parents' home for a small dinner, which was really like 25 people. And, you know, sitting down and watching this, this play between, I mean, it wasn't wine, it was, you know, vodka and food, but watching the play between the drinks and the food and the cadence of eating and drinking um, back and forth and toasts and singing, um, it became, yes, about the food, but it became more about the experience and sitting at the table. And that was a really important moment, I think, um, was a bit of a sea change in the way that I thought about food and the way that I thought about an experience. Um, and then of course, you know, uh, being, being around her family for longer periods of time, we would go to other restaurants that were quote unquote Russian restaurants. And it was just, it was pretty lousy, or I would say even disrespectful um, for their food. And I started developing this idea that, you know, the best Russian food that you can have or that most people have typically is in someone's home you know, because, you know, ma mama's cooking it or babushka's cooking it. And um, it's very um, familial and close. And I wanted to take that and show everyone the experience that I had, you know? Yes, a lot to unpack there. Some good, like, foundations and philosophies to service as a whole. 
which having dined at Kachka back in 2016 was pretty clear. Uh, you know, I mean, the, the kitchen was like right there. Of course, we sat right next to the kitchen. It was clear how like the, the connection to the food and the, the relationship between the servers and, and the back of house was very interesting to vibe off of. So clearly yeah. that, was, that was thoughtful. It was noticeably thoughtful and curated. So I'm glad that you said that, that you noticed that it was a different experience because that was clear. I like hearing that as well. And so there was an interesting thing that we got into a little bit, Bonnie and I, about how even though on paper she and I are more talented cooks than our mothers who are both prolific home cooks in their own right, Somehow we could just never cook their dishes better than them. And you say you jabber a little bit every once in a while saying, sorry, mom's is better. Get into that a little bit. What, what's that like? And how fun is that to jab yeah. a world-class chef when it comes to mom's <laughs> cooking? Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's dangerous, I'll tell you. Um, you have to be really careful uh, and, and, you know, tread lightly. You know, I, I think that there's just something about um, – the difference between somebody who reads recipe and somebody who doesn't. There's a difference between somebody who has all the knife skills in the world uh, compared to like her mom who cuts everything in her own hand with a paring knife, you know? Um, I don't think I've ever even seen her use a cutting board, you know? And, and yet the kind of food or salads that she'll come out with um, are very well known in Russian cuisine and Bonnie and I make them pretty frequently. But there's something, there's something different. There's something that maybe um, changes when you take it to scale. I mean, that technically might be um, one of the differences, but I would tell you that there are, now there aren't many, but there are a, a precious few dishes that if I had my, you know, my desert island food, I'd be reaching for my mother-in-law's version. And that's not a shameless plug in case my mother-in-law hears this. So I'm just kind <laughs> of letting you know that it's, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty special. Oh, Israel, you got to make sure we share this with her because I need her to know <laughs> she's, getting, she's getting the daps from everybody on being that prolific home cook. I think uh, food is very situational, and the way that we interact with it is very personal. And yes. that's just hard to recreate no matter what. And so there's a sense and a feeling and an emotion and like, you know, your sense of smell is the closest tied to memory. So like instantly a smell will bring you back to grandma's house. And For that sure. very much is that sense of place. It's impossible to recreate as much as you try in a restaurant. You're trying to take them to that place. You've actually been to that place. So that place holds us food and familial food to be able to something you guys are chasing and seeking, which I think is the value is always seeking for it, knowing you're probably never going to attain it. But that's the point, right? Is the, right. Is the, prog the, the process to kind of continue to try to get to that place. So let's go really contemporary with your, with your team now. Bonnie again was very adamant about how important service is that you are as much, if not more, the reason that Kachka is what it is. And she got to shout out a little bit of her team, but I'd love to go to some of your philosophies on service. We've touched them on them a little bit, and then maybe an opportunity to talk about some of your team that really embody this different style of service that you're trying to bring to people through representing Soviet cuisine. Sure, absolutely. I mean, I feel like 
you know, the, the idea of home and eating in someone's home is such a, um, a rooted concept and philosophy with how we conduct ourselves on the dining room floor, um, knowing that we're a restaurant and we're a business, but we should act as if we're at home. Um, and so, you know, uh, if it can be done, we're going to do it. Um, if, you know, there's a, ever a question between, you know, performing a step of service versus offering hospitality, um, we're going to have the latter mindset. Um, because really, these people have chosen to be at Kachka. They've chosen us not just to, you know, eat our food and drink, you know, our vodka, but they've chosen to be taken care of and have an experience. And, you know, um, uh, in, in uh, the Republic of Georgia, there's a saying, uh, they're very well known for hospitality. And, you know, there's a saying that, you know, um, guests or visitors are a gift from God. And you should be grateful for them. You should be excited that they're here and give them everything you can. And so within the confines of a restaurant, that really is the philosophy that we have. Um, now, how we frame that is through this all-encompassing, um, uh, you know, uh, surrounding level of Russian cuisine and Russian stimuli and Russian music and everything to kind of complete the picture, um, which I think really adds to the experience when you have someone who knows all about the food and the dishes, but then is surrounded in an environment that looks like it could be in post-Soviet Russia. And it sounds like Russia in like the eighties, you know, and that's, uh, I think that's a really um, transformative and uh, an opportunity to transport someone. That makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Sorry. And I'm interested. No, it's good. You're a, you're a philosopher. I love it. And, and able to actually be a practitioner of that, which is unbelievably challenging. So there was, there was one point that you made that just purely from a practical standpoint, and again, I'd love to hear about some of the people that are executing on this, is you want to make it feel like home and your hospitality first and man is that important both hospitality for your external guests but also your internal guests and i think that is something unique and hard to find so with the thing that you said was was making it feel like home and that made me think like how do you balance the ability to do that in an authentic way and still be a machine like executing professionally <laughs> and having the staff being able to ebb and flow of of making a decision as they would in their own home, but still being a professional. For sure, yeah, that's, um, that's a pretty careful balance. Um, I would say that, you know, with regard to hospitality, I mean, I know that myself as a diner, and I would imagine many others, when you go out to dine, you're not really just looking at what's in your glass and what's on your plate the entire time. You know, you're always looking around at the show, at each other, or at the service staff. And so what's really important for uh, putting our best, you know, hospitable foot forward is not only treating our guests with hospitality, but treating each other like we're guests, treating each other with hospitality, because it would be pretty disingenuous if we only treated the people that were paying our bills in a hospitable way. You know, and so really this idea of family and being in a home is really involving everyone on your team, everyone on the floor, 
involving them in the, um, the act of service and hospitality toward a table or toward your guests. I think that in and of itself makes you feel like you're sitting at some family's dinner party and you're there because it's not just one person executing the whole thing. It's maybe that person and their sister and their aunt and, you know, the husband and two, right? So it's, it's everyone involved in taking care of um, this group of people. So really executing that from a hospitable standpoint, um, that's kind of the philosophy, but at the same time, um, to balance it, I mean, we, it just goes back to my first job, you know, I mean, we're hustlers, we run, we have one speed, we move really quickly. And um, as a result, I think that what we deliver are these really impactful, deep seated, like, um, like punches to your heart, while at the same time, keeping the vibe and the pace going and moving and moving. And before you know it, you know, you're wrapped up in this quick, you know, hour and a half, two hour reverie, and then it's done and you're gone, you know? And so um, really trying to give that experience without making it last, you know, uh, absurdly long has, is always a challenge, but my team moves fast. I mean, these days they move a lot faster than I do. Who on your team is really setting the, the mark for you right now? We love to always hear of the individuals who really are capturing the essence of what their restaurant, their style of hospitality uh, is? And, and who do you see just really being somebody that stand, stands out for you, that they're, they're delivering on that promise you're making to your guests? Oh, for sure. I mean, you know, we have a number of servers and bartenders that um, really execute well for us. And um, we've even traveled with some of them to Russia and Belarus and really trying to give people kind of a window into the style and the, the way of living there. But um, I would say, and this is something that it's funny that Bonnie mentions her frustration with lack of uh, talking about hospitality, because I share the same frustration for people like general managers. Um, you know, our general manager, Annalisa, is so fantastic. She has one of the most difficult jobs to to liaison between uh, owners of the restaurant that know the concept, that live this life, and all of this staff that may not know how to pronounce things or have no frame of reference. And how do you create that team? Um, how do you see with my eyes? How do you speak with my voice? How do you speak with Bonnie's palate? You know, and so Annalisa is our GM um, and she's, she's uh, invaluable. You know, it's, it's funny because you will always hear in, you know, uh, food media or whatnot about like this chef leaving this restaurant and going to this restaurant or even, even down to like CDCs and sous chefs and stuff. But you never hear about this pillar of this restaurant as a general manager is leaving to go do this, you know? I mean, I don't, I don't remember the last time I read something like that. And if Annalisa wasn't here, I mean, a lot of things would, a lot of wheels would come off, you know? Why do you think that is? I just don't know. Maybe it's not as glamorous. <laughs> maybe it's not, you know, um, it, it's not as good of a story, maybe. Um, it may, maybe it's because general managers don't create things uh, that are tangible. Uh, I think front of house skills are often in creating and providing something that's intangible. Um, and so 
maybe it's a little harder to latch onto. Yeah, we got to spend more time celebrating those quote unquote soft skills because do they make all the difference? The old adage is so true. People will go to a restaurant again and again that has great service and okay food. They'll never go back to a restaurant that has mediocre service and good food. It's, it's, right. It rings true every time. So I think it's, it's a good point. Love the philosophy. Love the balancing act that you two have between uh, the front of house and back of house. I think those relationships are everything. And, and, you know, every time it breaks down, it's because front of house does this, back of house does that. Morning you guys do this. Night crew right. does that. All, all of those, we silo ourselves so quickly. And so I think it's clear sure. that you are trying to keep those barriers down so people truly have that authentic Soviet family feeling, the staff being empowered to make it feel like home without drinking too much vodka and being drunk uncle. That's important. <laughs> Clearly sure. important. Yes. And uh, appreciate the leadership and, and love the, the philosophies on service because I think it's so, so important. Israel, thank you so much for talking with us. It was really a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the Best Served Podcast. Subscribe to our show and connect with us on social media at Best Served Podcast. Tune in next week to discover more unsung hospitality heroes.